The following is a Frank R. Wilson presentation. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it covered. We talk to those from the industry and learn about them and their favorite scores. Welcome to What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So let's take a look at the shelf of CDs and see what we're going to play today. Recognize that music? It's among the favorites of our guest today. He's a film composer who has studied under Christopher Young and Elmer Bernstein, uh, among others. Uh, he's scored numerous TV shows and films uh, on both sides of the Atlantic and also performs with his own band. Uh, he also has a new score coming out in March that I want to talk to him about that sounded like a fascinating project. I hope all of you please join me in welcoming Jason Frederick to the program. Hi, Jason. Hello, Frank. Really glad uh, glad you could join us today. Um, we'll we'll get into ways of how we connected and that sort of thing as the, as the program goes on. But uh, what I like to do with our guests typically is to get to know a little bit about them and their background and growing up and things like that. So if you wouldn't mind, kind of just tell us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. Uh, I am from a town in. Northern Ontario, called Sudbury, Ontario, from Canada, hmm. and um, I was an accordion player from the age of about five, because the town I was from had about 150,000 people, but something like 600 accordion players. <laughs> it was just something that everybody did, and I was in accordion bands in various sizes, little accordion ensembles and everything, and uh, I got my dad's accordion, 1954, Titano Goldhawk, got passed down to me from him. And yeah, it was just something that people did. So in a way, a lot of my uh, musical journey was based on the fact that after I was about 12, I didn't want to admit to anybody I played the accordion. Because, <laughs> um, in Canada, where I was from, it wasn't really something you could make work when you started opening your eyes to all the various kind of musical opportunities that were out there and you wanted to get into a group or a band and play for people. And that didn't really work so i had to learn the guitar and the keyboards kind of as fast as i could so i could get in a band and humans could see me and that kind of thing and so actually from 12 to about 19 uh, every once in a while i'd run into someone and they'd say uh did you play the accordion i go no 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 you think <laughs> sorry what accordion i don't know and then i don't know i guess i grew up myself and realized that it was pretty cool and i still take it out and play it on things from from time to time mm. but uh, yeah 
yeah so uh, after that i was in a band and uh we got uh we were an indie band for a few years and then uh, we released a, an album on uh mca and like all classic bands do uh shortly after that we broke up and then i moved uh to america and uh yeah worked in america in uh the film and tv music industry till 2010 and then i've relocated to the uk after that hmm Interesting path, uh, and it's obvious that you were drawn to music, uh, especially at a very early age, but I'm kind of curious, how did you go from the accordion to writing scores for film and television shows? Um, I think it was something that was always uh, interested, I was interested in, rather, as soon as I was able to find out about it, thanks to cable television. Uh, that was really the uh, the door that opened the key with cable television. I think my uncle had cable television, and we mm-hmm. uh, we only had three channels, and one was French. And I actually used to watch James Bond movies in French because <laughs> I thought they were great in any language, even though I couldn't quite understand them. I remember uh, Thunderball was called Operation Tonnerre, <laughs> but uh, but my uncle had cable. He had thirteen channels. And uh, on Friday night, they had something called, uh, I think it was ABC, Friday Night of the Movies. And they showed James Bond movies week after week in order. And my parents were hip enough to say, oh, they're just beginning this, so we can start you on Dr. No. We'll go visit with your uncle, and you can go downstairs and watch television. So Hmm. I used to go there every single uh, week. And that was when I first became aware of film music, when I was about 10, I think. Yeah, I just thought it was amazing, it just, and and it was a wonderful thing that uh, you could see the progression and hear the progression of the scores from week after week. Yeah, yeah, and it all lined up right uh, perfectly. I think for me to then go see Moonraker. I think I saw Moonraker on my birthday when it played in my hometown the second time. I think it played the year after it came out. Mm-hmm. It came. It came back on a double bill with the man with the golden gun. Oh, wow. So I went to the cinema and watched that. I watched half of the man with the golden gun. My dad came in and took me and said, we got to go. And I said, oh, <laughs> this is not fair. And he said, well, we got to go. It's late in your tent or whatever. So, no. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that was, that was the, uh, I have to say that uh, television and, you know, the James Bond series was what uh, was opened the door for me. And it was really great that they actually played the, in order like that. When I was in uh, uni years later, I read that the French, the Cahier du Cinéma, all the French um, film critics that became uh, directors themselves, like uh, Francois Truffaut and, and Godard, they mm-hmm. were uh, able to see the output of directors that was held back from them during the war. So suddenly they could see like 10 John Ford films in a row or 10 Alfred Hitchcock films in a row. Huh. And I realized that, that I had the similar experience where over the course of two months or something, I saw, you know, 20 years worth of James Bond scores week after week. And I think that kind of impact really implanted itself upon me. Yeah. Well, in, in looking at your list of favorites, you've got a real wide diversity, which I, which I love. And there's many pieces I'm familiar with and a couple that I'm not. I thought we'd uh, start off with, and I say an unusual choice, not not because, I mean, I love it as well. I just didn't, I wouldn't have expected this to show up on someone's list. And that's uh, some music from a uh, from a very popular uh, uh, Christmas cartoon that shows in the United States uh, based on right. the Peanuts character. And the, the cue you, you chose was Linus and Lucy, which 
will be instantly recognizable to a lot of our listeners, certainly in the States. Tell me a little bit about why that happens to, to make your list of favorites. Well, I think uh, once I was aware of how much I liked uh, film music, I started recording film music. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a little tiny uh, Sony, well, I forget what it was called. It was called a TC-251 or something like that. One of those tiny cassette recorders. And I used to like position myself in front of the, t- the television and just record things so I could listen back. Mm. And uh, that was one of the a similar experience to uh, the James Bond series is that every year you kind of got to see another one. And so it never missed, uh, you know, uh, Merry Christmas, Charlie Brown. Or whatever. Charlie Brown Christmas. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, I never missed that one. And then every, you know, summer or autumn, there was another one. And I thought, this is amazing. I'm starting to realize that this is what some people do for a living. Like every year they get involved in something and they write the music. And I can tell it's the same person who's involved, even though it's changing a little bit. So uh, that was another early kind of inspiration for me. Well, it's an interesting story. I mean, there's lots of interesting stories behind this, but it was it was music that people loved that just wasn't a commercially available for years. You had to wait until the show came on to hear it. Exactly. And then uh, yeah. I, I can't I can't remember when, but it finally some uh, some smart person finally got the rights to the music and actually released a CD of a lot of these cues that were in these programs. And it's just fabulous listening. Let's uh, instead of talking more about it, let's let's hear what we're talking about. This is uh, from a Charlie Brown Christmas. The cue is called Linus and Lucy, and uh, it's written by Vince Garaldi. Yes.
we started off with a with a cue from TV, and that, it kind of brings me to a, a question uh, concerning your own career because you've you've written for both uh, television and film. Other than the obvious, I'm sure probably budgets are a little bit different. But is there is there anything different in your approach or anything different about working on a project for television uh, versus film? Uh, yeah, basically, I would have to say the gestation period is usually longer if you work on something uh, cinematic, cinematic length. Mm-hmm. Uh, for television, it's uh, you're more concerned with coming up with a range of material that then you can start adapting. And once that happens, you do start adapting it pretty quickly. Whereas when you work on, well, I, anyway, when I work on something uh, filmic, you usually have more time to experiment to come up with the approach you're going to take. Mm-hmm. And chances are you can get longer cues as well. So that means you have more time to sort of think about uh, the process and the process might change. You might do more revisions and things like that. Whereas uh, television, for better or for worse, uh, time frames are shorter. So you do only have so much time to get the music to where it has to be. Yeah. And then it kind of does... Uh, get taken out of your hands, which can be quite, uh, you know, quite spiritually cleansing. Like you work as hard as you can and then you just let it go. You have to know, <laughs> let it go. And that's it. Well, and I, and I got to think, cause I, I, I know that you've also done uh, music for commercials and uh, mm-hmm. that, that's got to even be, you know, I guess, well, I don't know. You tell me what is that differ from, from TV? Is it even more, uh, I don't know yeah, what the I word should... is I'm looking for, but if you could just talk to me about the commercials. Yeah, sure. I, I think um, that that's its own that's its own um, world as well. It's sort of it's similar to television, but it, it's just you can spend so much time on the tiniest, tiniest detail when you work on uh, on anything kind of advertising based because you don't know what that element is that's going to win somebody over. And mm-hmm. you've got a really short amount of time to make your point. So, uh, yeah, you can you can spend a lot of time revising to get that magical element. Um, I, I did a car advert um, about a year or two ago, and I scored the entire thing because they asked me to score the entire thing. And uh, I just kind of looked at it and got what I could get out of it and, and presented all this music to them. And at the very end, there was a pause in the dialogue of the person who was, you know, the kind of spokesperson. Right. So I, I stopped briefly and then put this tiny button at the end of it. And uh, they heard it and decided that the button was perfect. The button was going to be the thing that was going to be the entire commercial. And <laughs> 90% of the music just got thrown out. But the button, which was actually just a complete afterthought, wasn't anything that I had put any kind of, you know, particular attention to or thought, oh, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't really inspired about that. bit. But then <laughs> upon hearing it back, I was like, oh, yeah, they're right. I get it. I, I understand. But you have to sometimes go through that entire thing. To well, you decide. got paid the same amount, right? Oh, yeah. everything. Was, oh, OK, yeah. well, that, that's yeah. the important yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you yeah. weren't you weren't paid by the note. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. As a matter of fact, uh. And I actually ended up writing a bit of extra music that was inspired by this button at the end, just so it, it wasn't completely naked. And then just suddenly there was this music that came out of nowhere. But yeah. it wasn't related to anything. The thematic thing that I came up with that I thought was going to be the winning thing, it wasn't wasn't what they wanted at all. And so so you're, you're sort of part of that collaborative 
thing and, and it can make your your sort of uh, neurons very sensitive because if you're trying to get something like that happening you don't like anything could be the thing you drop a spoon and you're like oh my drop this could that be it oh i don't know or you know you take the dog for a walk and you hear a car go by and you think there's a sound like you know you're really extra sensitive to what <laughs> it could be because you're yeah. kind of looking for a hook most of the time oh wow i, I we're we're, we're going to stay with with um with tv again which and i applaud you for this by the way because i've had goodness we've done i think over 20 programs now and i don't think anybody has chosen music from 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 television programs so i actually applaud you for that and this is a theme i actually didn't didn't recognize because i don't think i watched the program when it was on uh you, you chose the uh, i guess it's the main theme from the tv show the incredible hulk yes tell me tell me a little bit about uh, why you, you included that in your list uh, well, I don't know if you uh, recall, but uh, in the 1970s, uh, yeah. that was your that was your superhero television. Oh yeah, in in the late 70s, and uh, it still holds up. I don't know if you ever if you ever have any extra time to watch the Incredible Hulk, but if you watch especially the pilot, it's really really great. And I think part of the reason that it's great is uh, because the acting is really good. You know, mm. Bill Bixby's really good. And the music's really fabulous. And the end theme is just on piano. It's this thing that's now called the Lonely Man theme. And uh, I learned how to play that when I was, you know, 10 years old or whatever it was. And mm. uh, and I think I recorded myself playing it somewhere in, in, in my home. There's like a cassette of me playing the, the Incredible Hulk theme. But you can hear all the motifs and everything that you hear in the end theme in the main title. And uh, I was just such a fan of the music. And in uh, the late 1990s, I got the opportunity to go to the University of Southern California to study film scoring. And the one of the lecturers, mentors, uh, was Joe Harnell, the guy who oh, did wow. the, the composer who did the music to uh, The Incredible Hulk and uh, The Bionic Woman. And uh, he worked on the uh, $6 million man Bionic Woman crossover. Okay, yeah, yeah. He and Alien Nation and just tons and tons of uh, fabulous stuff. And I got the opportunity to uh, have some private lessons with him. And I worked for him uh, after, after I graduated. And, yeah, we just spent loads of time. He's a very, very uh, well-rounded, intelligent, thoughtful and really talented guy and it was really great to spend time with him and oh. uh, and it was like this weird closing of the circle because i was really honestly you know 25 years on a fan of the incredible hulk music and then to, to work with him that that close is yeah. that's quite yeah. a story my goodness oh yeah well let, let's yeah. have a listen to this this is the i, I guess it's the main theme right yeah, from the incredible yeah. hulk the yeah. uh, main theme from the incredible hulk hulk <laughs> and it's written by joe harnell
I don't know if this question is going to make sense or not. And I've heard this discussed in a couple of interviews, I think. And I think I even know what you're going to say, but but I thought it'd be worth asking anyway. When you when you're writing music to uh, to score a, a TV or or a film, are are you writing the music to support what is happening visually on the screen, or are you trying to communicate or support what the characters are thinking and going through? Well, the short answer to that, which probably isn't very short now that I think, <laughs> is uh, that you're a collaborator. So depending on who's making the project, who's behind it, whether the, the director or if uh, you're working on a television series, then usually it's sort of like the, an executive producer who's kind of the, 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 the visionary, the person who's driving the ship. Okay. Uh, he or she will have uh, an opinion of what it needs. And you have to basically be sensitive to the fact that you get uh, an instinctive response to whatever gets put in front of you, visually, basically, or you know, emotionally. You get an mm-hmm. idea instantly. But you really want to put yourself into this collaborating mode. So you're as inspired as you can be. But you're also aware that they've been living with this for a year or two years, sometimes before you've seen it. So you kind of need to function as somebody who's there to give them what they think it needs. So sometimes they'll feel like it needs something emotional and, you know, you'll be able to communicate to them that that's what you're trying to do. Or, you know, if it's animation or something, it'll be it'll be extremely physical. You know, what's on the screen has to be kind of reflected by the score. So, so you kind of have to know what, what's needed and the more you can kind of communicate with them, the more you'll hopefully understand, uh, yeah, what it needs. And sometimes you'll be able to surprise them with something that, you know, as you say, kind of plays up the emotional aspect of something and then they'll understand it because they'll feel it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you've done a good thing, but like pop music, it tends to work or it doesn't. So you have to be aware of that too. You can spend a lot of time working on something, but if it just doesn't work, you know, all the explaining you can do, it doesn't really help. You know, it just, okay, fine. It doesn't work. Here it is. Here's the sound of me crumpling it up and <laughs> trying again, you know, because it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. That's fine. And you have to know that, that as part of your team and as part of the team that you are, you know, it has to, has to be something that everybody feels works and that's kind of the the basic goal of it all i think yeah is is there a uh is there a particular director that you had a a pleasant experience with uh, on a a project and that you guys seemed to click and it was a an easy collaboration because i'm sure they're you know challenging ones as well but was there one that you recall that was you know oh i've I've had uh, yeah i've had loads i've had a really uh i've had a a, a litany of great experiences to, to be honest right now uh, i'm i'm periodically uh working on something that is being uh released on the internet called carman the road rage anti-hero and that is being uh, uh created and animated and written and, and directed by uh this man named rob pratt who's extremely talented and uh, he's a, an artist. He's, a, he's done everything from uh, directing and storyboards and uh, for an animating uh, for Disney productions. He works on uh, Elena of Avalor at the moment. And, uh, and he has a great sense of what the music should do 
even when the music has to be really big and over the top. And uh, that's always just a, a lovely thing to have because sometimes uh, people can be afraid of music. You know, people can think it might be distracting a little bit. And when you love the worlds of, of you know, James Bond films and Henry Mancini and all of that kind of thing, you think big is good. Something you notice is a good thing, but sometimes people are a bit afraid of it. And he, he's always kind of pushing it. He's like, I think it could get even bigger. And you're like, well, great, bigger it'll get, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned uh, uh, Mancini, which really leads us to the next one I wanted to play. I I loved a lot of his uh, a lot of his work and 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 have some of it collected. You you this was I guess maybe an easy choice. I don't mean that as a critical thing, but if there's certainly a, a piece of music that he's known for, it's it's from the Pink Panther series. Mm-hmm. And you uh, you chose a cue from Return of the Pink Panther, which I think yeah. is actually my my favorite of all of them. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how that made your list or why you wanted to include that one? Um, that was another one, uh, that went on the cassette. Um, when Mm -hmm. I was about, uh, 12 or 13, there was a record store in our uh, mall called Sam, the record man. And, uh, someone who used to work there behind the counter, the, the records used to come in from Toronto on the bus. The bus was like four, five hours from Toronto. And wow. so once a week, the records would come in on the bus. And so uh, we used to do our, you know, probably daily sometimes uh, after school sojourn to the record store to buy things and beg uh, Pete, who worked behind the counter, Pete, you know, this is what we're after now. Can you can you get us the Yonder the Twice soundtrack, please, Pete? And he goes, Yeah, I don't know, because he was the he was the master. He had the card and he had to order it. And if he ordered it, it would come and they'd put it on the bus. And and so we would just beg Pete week after week to get stuff. And uh, I got uh, Pure Gold, Henry Mancini. I remember getting that. Yeah. And I got uh, the Pink Panther. And uh, but Return of the Pink Panther, I didn't have a chance to get as a soundtrack till many years later. And so that one was my my cassette up to the uh, up to the up to the television speaker version of it, which I had for years. And uh, <laughs> and the opening, which uh, we're about to hear, I believe, uh, yeah. it, a lot of it plays in almost complete silence. The music really drives the entire thing. And so that's why it's such a great cue. Yeah, without. Um, we- and that's you know if anybody ever has a chance to to watch a rough cut of a movie that that doesn't have music you'd be surprised how flat everything is. Sure. And yeah. and this in this particular scene you're talking about yeah there's there's no dialogue it's very very quiet because it's a, a robbery that's taking place. And uh, you know that would be pretty dull and boring really to watch unless it unless it was supported by some music and this is a great example of that. Well let's sure. um. Yeah, let's let's have a listen to this. This is uh, from uh, Return of the Pink Panther, and it's written by the maestro Henry Mancini.
I was real tempted before to ask you this question, and I, I wanted to save it because I, I, I think I know what you're going to say, but but I don't know. We'll find out. You, you've kind of come into film scoring at a at a very interesting time mm. because it it's it strikes me. Well, that's gonna if I do that, then it's gonna be a leading question. Let me let me let me ask it this way. Do you think film scoring has has changed a lot in the last 20 years? And if so, what has changed or why? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I I, I think it's pretty undoubtedly uh, a different world. Um, there's a lot of different uh, reasons I think it had changed. I wouldn't know where to begin, really. Uh, I think mm-hmm. there was a uh, well, I guess the main the, the main thing is that uh, film scoring soundtracks and television soundtracks were essentially recorded air for about 70 years weren't they like whether you were listening to a jingle or uh, a song on the radio or a film score or a television score humans were assembled in a room and they were recorded with Mm -hmm. microphones and that was essentially what you got even even uh, scores like on your majesty's secret service i was under the impression that you know the moogs were brought in and the speakers were recorded. You know, there wasn't anything that was sort of direct injection down the cables into the software oh, yeah. or whatever yeah. the recording thing is. And so now we have sound. We can play with sound as the waveform that it is and mold it and change it around. And, and we don't necessarily need a human to perform something in real time. So I think that's a huge difference. Suddenly people are at home manipulating noise and frequencies as opposed to people are in a central place where they've all gathered for one day to lay down sound. Mm. It, 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 I guess where I was going with her, and I'd like to hear your opinions on this. I guess yeah. there's two things I think that are, that I've noticed that happen. And by the way, when I look at you, I was just looking at your list thinking of this perspective. I don't believe there's anything on this list that is past 1980. It's quite possible. Yeah. Uh, so that that's telling to me as well. But, but where I was going to go with this was that um, two things it seems to me have happened because I'm 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 not sure I really like. I'm not saying there aren't scores out there I do like present day. There are, mm-hmm. but for the most part, not so much. And for two reasons. One, it seems to me that because of all the advancements in uh, in sound effects and and I I gravitate to action movies. That's one thing I really like. But you got all these great sound effects, and I and I think composers are thinking like, you know, I've, I've got to compete with that sound. So you're getting a lot of loud and brash kind of scores these days is is yep. one thing. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, and and again, I'm I'm musically illiterate, so you know, I don't really know what I'm talking about. Uh, but it strikes me that I I don't hear like real melodies anymore a, a lot of times mm-hmm. in in scores. Can, can yeah. you talk to that? Am, am I am I way off yeah. base on that? Or? No, no, not at all. I think uh, I think in a way that is that is related uh, to the technological side of things that that people are able to create uh, soundscapes that that don't necessarily have to be melodic. Uh, at the same time, I think there is a move away from melody just in general. I, I think that um, I, I wouldn't want to make generalizations about whether people are becoming slightly sensitive to some melodies feeling like they're too emotional or something like that so mm-hmm. so people think maybe a melody is leading me 
a motif. I'm, I feel like I'm being led. I personally don't have a problem with that. I think the emotional, you know, component of music is what makes people want to listen to something for 40 years or something like that, you know? Um, and I am always interested in, in like, a, I, call, I call myself an idea man. Like, I'm, I'm interested in the idea behind something mm-hmm. personally more than even the production sometimes. Uh, when you do something, you want it to sound as good as it can, and you want the highest quality kind of recording of it. But at the same time, I mean, I love the sound of old records. I I love what you'd call not clean sound. Mm-hmm. You know, even if it's like psych bands or garage bands from the '60s or whatever. I I love all of that sound. And so uh, the idea is the thing that always pulls me in. I think in the modern world, some for some people, production sort of is the idea. But for me, I like the sort of melodic harmonic thing as the idea. That's and I think that is just a. I don't know if it's a, it's a phase we're going through and it'll go back the other way, or. Uh, but yeah, I think you're right. There is there is definitely a move away from the sort of melodic component of scores nowadays, but not mm. completely. You know. Yeah. No. And I don't mean to suggest it's complete either, but it just seems to me to be less and less. The the next one on your list we're going to play is is by someone that I loved a lot of the melodies that he developed from from a very prolific career. I'm talking about composer Jerry Goldsmith, and the cue you chose was um, uh, "Escape from the Planet of the Apes." Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about about your uh, wanting to include that on your list. Well, I've I've been a lover of of mr goldsmith from as long as i can remember and um one of the things i don't think it's 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 necessary in all times but when you can push an idea on something in the middle of something that is otherwise just supposed to be enjoyed on a superficial level or whatever i really am a huge uh fan of that which is i think how you and i became um associated uh, i did a podcast called uh uh, Jason Frederick's Scory Time, which was uh, the first episode was dedicated to the first four chords of Honor Majesty's Secret Service. That's right. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I thought, um, you know, I like the idea that something just works. It just hits you and you can listen to it and you think it's wonderful, but there's something going on kind of in the background. And uh, I really loved the Planet of the Apes soundtrack. And then Jerry Goldsmith came back to do Escape from the Planet of the Apes, and the type of film was completely different, and he did this completely different score. And mm. the opening uh, main title, it has uh, a really weird time signature. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's I think it's a bar of 4-4 four, four followed by a bar of 5-8 over and over again. And it's really hard to count but you can listen to it, and it's this kind of groovy piece of music. But if you start thinking about it and go, oh, I'm going to count my way through this, it's one of the mm-hmm. hardest kind of metric uh, divisions of the score I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. And yet he somehow shoved it in there because his brain is so incredible and massive, and he's such a, a monster at what he does. He found a way to get this really complicated rhythmic idea, and he put it in the middle of his main title, and it's brilliant. Wow. You don't have to care about that, but if you do and start counting with it, you go, "Oh my God, what's he doing?" <laughs> and it's like, "Wow, how did he do that?" 
And he did, yeah, he's Gary Goldsmith. That's what. Yeah, and I guess he's, he, you know, th- th- there's a method to his madness, no doubt. I don't know what it was he was trying to communicate, but there, there, there there's a message there, I guess, right? With. Yeah, do- and and he was he was able to work on things that were really popular, but he was also able to approach it like uh, an uncompromising artist. And I think I love people who are able to do that. Mm. Yeah, and of course, you know, but. but yeah, I mean, he he had earned that right, I think, to uh, oh yeah, to be that powerful. Well, let's uh, let's have a listen to this. I I did. I listened to it the other day when you had sent it to me, and it was a, uh, I loved it as well. This is a, is this is this a main title as well, or yep, it is okay, the main title. Main, main title from the film Escape from the Planet of the Apes, and it's written by Jerry Goldsmith.
I get the feeling that, you know, and, and again, because I've noticed that your list is really going back quite a quite a few years. I guess you're also a, a fan of the uh, of the Hammer films, are you? A huge fan, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever get a chance to watch them? No, I haven't. Although I'm familiar with it because I have several friends that that uh, uh, that are really into that as well. And I I want to say that's a UK product, right? I mean, the, 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 oh yeah, yeah. Okay, I I thought so. And I have some friends in England that I know are, are love those, and we'll talk about it occasionally. So I know, I you know, I mean, I know what the genre is pretty much, but I don't know. Uh, about any of the films per se, other you know, I know they did Dracula films and stuff like that, but yeah, what is it about them that um, uh, that, that attracted you, and in, in in fact, including one of its scores on your list? Well, I think they're they're just incredibly uh, charming, uh, all uh, in and of themselves. You know, the the sets are fantastic and the acting is fantastic. Some of the the sort of group of uh of the squad of of british uh actors who are involved christopher lee and peter cushing and herbert lom and charles gray and uh, donald pleasance are just you know wonderful wonderful actors to watch and um the the sort of the next phase of of uh of my development into music came uh in the late 1980s when uh video stores started opening up and mm-hmm. then you could sort of dive in to watch old films instead of you know, setting your clock to make be home at a certain time because something was on television and that was all <laughs> you could do. And so that's when I dove right into, uh, you know, Buster Keaton and Alfred Hitchcock and, and Hammer. And that was suddenly a bunch of Hammer films where it, and old horror films. There's another uh, studio here called Amicus. And uh, and suddenly you were able to watch all of these things that you didn't really know about. And when I moved here, um, people had said that Hammer films used to get played sort of in Saturday evening in the wee hours you know into sunday kind of thing you'd come home from the pub or whatever and there'd be a hammer film on and i thought oh that's interesting because i became enamored of them through renting them as i rented everything and everything i could get my hands on it was just something you know i would and again it was always the scores because the scores were big and arch and romantic and they sounded lovely and Mm. they were mono but the mono sounded brilliant and and yeah so i i discovered uh the lit the wonderful group of uh of uh composers for horror in the 60s and early 70s now i have a daughter that loves quote horror films unquote it, it, 21 years old now is she gonna if i tell her hey you should check out some of these are gonna is she gonna say oh this is so lame i mean uh, you know where i'm you know what i'm saying yeah uh, you have to try yeah i mean i would hope so because i mean i think you're really missing out on something if you don't go back to some of these classics and there's there's more to horror than just uh, uh, you know what kind of blood effects you can create and it's yeah which that's good too but yeah that's, yeah that's another thing i mean by today's standards they're not horrific even though they were rated x they were all rated were x. they really wow yeah they were i think it's because uh i don't wow. know this for, for certain but i think it's because the blood was in color so yeah they were all they were all <laughs> after the universal series from the 30s and 40s those were almost I think all actually uh, in black and white. And so when Hammer uh, took over the series and started making the mummy and Dracula and Frankenstein and everything else, they were all in color. This was the Ooh. first sort of technicolor horror that people <laughs> see. 
Yeah. So again, they were all rated X, but I mean, isn't that great? What a well, that's fascinating little fact. I had no idea. Yeah. But you can watch well, it with your grandmother today. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you chose, uh, I guess it's again uh, probably a main theme from a film called Demons of the Mine, ah, yes. written by Harry Robinson. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about that cue. Um, Harry Robinson was a uh, composer who uh, did quite a few uh, Hammer scores, and uh, his music has started to come out on uh, compilations now because there's there's quite a few uh, kind of Hammer horror compilations that you can get, and uh, he was just a really a uh, wonderful composer, but until that started happening, uh, I wasn't aware of him, um, his output being something that was represented on soundtracks. Mm-hmm. Part of the things I loved is that, uh, you know, I love John Barry and I love Jerry Goldsmith and Henry Mancini, and, and they were really well represented even when I was younger on vinyl in the soundtrack world. And uh, he's one of the composers who really just did some outstanding work, Harry Robinson, and uh, should get released to a wider audience huh fascinating okay well let's uh let's have a listen to this this again the main titles from a film hammer film called demons of the mind and it's written by harry robinson
most of the uh, most of the items on your list were things I was familiar with. I wasn't familiar with the last queue, and I'm also not familiar with this one. Uh, you listed uh, a queue that's labeled Bedazzled. Oh yeah. And I guess written by Dudley Moore. Is that <laughs> is that right? It sure yeah, is. I, I wonder if a lot of people don't realize just how talented and multi-talented he was, because he did. Uh, Quite an accomplished musician himself and and uh, and writer, but obviously a great actor and comedian and whatnot. Tell us a little bit about because uh, uh, I'm not familiar with that at all. Uh, uh, tell us a little bit about the film and, and why it ended up making up your list of favorites. Sure, uh, Dudley Moore was a comedian who was uh, part of a double act in the UK in the 1960s. Uh, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore used to. Uh, grace the television screens once a week with something called uh, Not Only But Also. And uh, Dudley Moore and his trio used to play a number in every episode or every most episodes. So it was the first time that um, people on television sort of got to see kind of a jazz combo on a weekly basis. And uh, in 1967, I believe, uh, they made the leap to the big screen. Uh, with uh, Stanley Donen uh, directed a uh, film called Bedazzled, which is sort of a take on the Faust legend. And uh, Dudley Moore wrote and uh, conducted and played uh, the soundtrack as well as uh, wrote and starred in the film. And hmm. just just incredible. He only did a couple of soundtracks. He, he did, uh, I don't know if he did more than half a dozen uh, combo albums, and uh, he only did a couple of soundtracks, but uh, Bedazzled is a, is a real win. It's fantastic. I don't know why, and I, I'm, I'm assuming, well, I, yeah, I know it was him. My only exposure to him in, in terms of music was that I just remember that great scene in the movie 10. He played, uh, you know, he was playing a songwriter, and he yeah. uh, was t- telling his lyricist, here, I'm going to send you a recording of where I'm at with this. He played this beautiful Mancini piece. And uh, which means it was a beautiful piece written by Mancini, but he just played it exquisitely. And it was just amazing. So I uh, I'm looking forward to, to hearing this and sharing with our listeners. This is from the film Bedazzled, and it's uh, written by, interestingly enough, Mr. Dudley Moore.
you mentioned a little earlier how we uh, how we ultimately got connected, and that was because I did come across your your fascinating piece about um, uh, the music from On Her Majesty's Secret Service. That instantly caught my eye because I'm a, a huge uh, John Barry fan, and and it was really interesting how you explained how that all worked. I not only in musical terms, but I think it it was trying to talk to, uh, you know, illiterates like me and help me understand a little bit about why this was actually a pretty brilliant piece of music. Um, is that something you're doing a lot of? Is I think it was a podcast or, or, or a blog or something like that. Is that something you do quite a bit of? Uh, I'm starting to do it more now, actually. Yeah. After, uh, after a couple of decades of just boring my friends senseless with these things, yeah. uh, people started saying, you know, you should, you should share this. You, you really should. And I think that was their way of saying, stop talking to us about it, you know, uh, go upstairs and record it or something. So I said, OK, yeah, sure. So I've, I have been uh, starting to uh, share my musings on uh, all things kind of score and, and just music in general, because uh, if if uh, I hadn't actually considered the fact, as you said, a lot of my choices are probably before 1980. And uh, it hadn't occurred to me until relatively recently that I some of my uh, tastes might be slightly, uh, you know, non-mainstream. And so uh, I thought if anything turns anybody on to something they hadn't heard of before, that, that's a pretty great thing. So, so that's Yeah. The, and actually, I, once um, I moved to the UK in 2010, and uh, one of the sort of hobbies I started doing was uh, interviewing composers, mostly of uh, horror films. Uh, from the 60s and 70s. And so uh, I was able to talk to uh, uh, Michael J. Lewis, who did the score to uh, Theatre of Blood, uh, starring Vincent Price. And uh, I've talked to uh, a bunch of great composers like Christopher Gunning. So, yeah, one of the things uh, I was able to do was uh, to interview uh, composers from uh, horror films from the uh, 60s and 70s. And uh, so that sort of also sparked my uh, my interest in kind of... Uh, exploring the world of soundtracks beyond just sort of creating them on your own. And it, it was instantly recognizable by me that you were uh, like me, as my listeners will no doubt know that I'm a, I'm a, just a huge, huge fan of John Barry. And uh, which is, which is why I bring up the melody um, uh, question and things like that. Cause I, I just, you know, I, I found a lot of his stuff, even, not only just the main themes and those sorts of things, but even throughout the, the, what I would call the incidental music, just the, you know, the, even the transition cues and things like that, that, that there was almost always a melody with them. And it was, I loved that. Yeah, absolutely. And actually I think one of the, one of the aspects to, as I've been getting older, uh, one of the aspects to a lot of composers that I think speak to me is actually a certain um, a certain kind of melancholy that is in their writing, mm. and actually uh, the Bedazzled soundtrack you you can hear that in Dudley Moore's writing. He does things that are sort of especially on that soundtrack very groovy and very sixties, but his melodic writing there is a sort of wistfulness and melancholy to something that that is behind it and i think john barry had that and i think henry mancini has that i think that is one of the 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 special qualities that i think really attract people i I realized you know after a few years that that was one of the things that was attracting me 
to them that there is that that wistful quality even when you, they're not doing something it's you know openly you know sad or yeah i mean you you've wow you've just hit me between the eyes i mean i think that that explains a lot to me yeah i i yeah. and i i agree with you and i think the, the uh yeah that's very that's really an interesting insight yeah i would i would concur with that um the um the item, uh, one of the items on your list, you know, technically a lot of people always think that John Barry wrote it. I think he had a, a, a large hand in this, but uh, technically it was written by Lionel Bart, and that's the uh, the main titles uh, from uh, the, the Bond film from Rush with Love. Yes. And what I found fascinating, and I can tell you're a fan, you said we got to play the one that includes the organ. And yeah. for, for those people that, that don't know, uh, Alan Haven, who was a, a very uh, well-accomplished jazz organist, yes. played on the main titles uh, in the film version. But for reasons that I – and I did some research over the last couple of days. For reasons I still can't find out, that version was not included in the soundtrack. So there is no, no. legitimate um, uh, studio-quality, commercially available recording of the main titles that also include the organ on it. That's we, true, yeah. we lifted this from YouTube. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, why you wanted to include this among your favorites, and and also with the caveat of I want the version with the with the organ in it. Yeah, well, I'm I'm a huge uh, Alan Haven fan. He's just uh, a great organist. He really, you know, got that kind of that that excitement. You know, he's like on eleven all the time. And, and, yeah. Uh, and and he played on a few. He played on the Knack uh, soundtrack, right. which John Barry also did. And there's a uh, there's a a sort of uh, I don't know what you call it kind of Soho cabaret version of uh, the theme from The Lion in Winter. Yeah, they did it. They came out with a single for that. Yeah. Yeah, and I believe Alan Haven's on that too. It certainly sounds he is. like. Yes. 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 And uh, so I, I thought uh, he he's he just adds excitement to everything he plays on. So I, I wanted to kind of include that version of it. But uh, but that was also the first. I think that was the moment because I'd seen uh, Dr. No to get back to my little being 10 year old self again, uh, because I'd seen Dr. No and thought that was great. And then the next week you suddenly had from Russia with love on television with this main title and this really, really tight and well edited, you know, gun barrel sequence going into its main title with these uh, crazy uh, light projections by Robert Brown, John on like, you know, the figures of people and stuff. Right. And, and this incredible main title. And you can really, I don't know if I'm reading too much into it, but to me, you can really hear the excitement on that version, that that arrangement and, and that performance. I think you really hear somebody who's like there, you know, saying, I'm here, I'm ready to prove myself, really announcing the presence that kind of John Barry had in, right. in that track. It's like so exciting. It's It's even more exciting than the version that's on the actual official soundtrack. Yeah, no, I agree. And yet, you know, and, and even though he doesn't get songwriting credit, I I have no doubt that he had a huge influence on what uh, what the finished product was. And he, yeah, he continued yeah. to include it on, you know, in all his concerts and compilation albums, too. So, yeah, yeah. yes, he did. Um, let's let's let the music do the talking for itself, then. This is the uh, the main titles from the uh, the James Bond film from Russia with Love. Uh, it's written by Lionel Bart, but also features. Alan Haven on the organ. Enjoy.
I, uh, in our communication going back and forth, one of the things that you mentioned was that uh, you're in the process, I guess, uh, or maybe you finished it, I don't know, of writing a score for a silent film from 1920, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yes, indeed. Yes. That that must have been really cool. I'd like to hear about what that you know what that was like. Great. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's the no. uh, John Barrymore, and uh, it's silent, and it's uh, his performance is really, really chilling and creepy, even by today's standards. Uh, it's it's incredibly creepy and nuanced. And uh, he changes from Henry Jekyll to uh, Mr. Hyde mostly through acting, the actual transformation. And I've, and I've mm. always thought this was a great, uh, this was a great uh, film that didn't have what I was aware of anyway as a definitive score. I hadn't heard anyone who had actually done the score that I thought, yeah, that really locks to it really nicely. And, and um, I was, uh, I did a lecture that on uh, horror music a few years ago and uh, at uh, a local art center, the Colchester Art Center here in the UK. Mm-hmm. And when talking to them, uh, they had said, you know, this was really interesting. I played live some uh, themes from horror films, and then I talked about what put them together, how they fit together, and how I thought they worked. And then I had some interviews uh, with composers that I had uh, the fortune to talk to. And uh, we were just talking about, you know, what would you like to do? And I said, actually, I would like to do a live score to uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, because I think that would be really uh, a nice opportunity. And I hadn't had a chance to do that yet, an entire feature length performance of something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they said, yeah, well, any films that come to mind? And I went instantly. Yes, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1920. Mm-hmm. So I set aside recording the score. And then I took the uh, piano and the organ and the glockenspiel and (laughs) the uh, accordion and the violin off of the score and made a sort of backing track without those things and played that with the film, which allowed me to kind of be uh, a performer with uh, my friend Mary Felgate playing violin. So we had like a tiny kind of combo, but it also gave the chance to have the studio bound kind of there were there was some atmospherics that you can achieve in the studio mm-hmm. and those were all kind of part of the score as well and so it's uh it's coming out this march on uh screamworks records which is uh due to be the 100th anniversary of the uh premiere of the film itself oh wow and and yeah. is there a uh, will there be distribution of the of the film with the score do you know i'm still working on that to be honest i don't okay. know how to do it but uh i'm actually uh sort of uh at the beginning stages of planning some some dates to actually play it live again because oh, uh, wow. i'm really pleased with how it went the first time and it's a great film uh, everybody who saw it has said wow I'm, i am not aware of this version and and yeah you're right john barrymore is incredible and it uh and it's it's you mentioned playing it live that's been a welcomed trend here lately uh more so i think in the uk than here although it is starting to pick up in the states and that's you know having a a a, a large orchestra perform an entire score live to yeah. picture you know in an auditorium and it's i've been to a couple of those and they're just fantastic so that's that's neat that you're looking at doing that with this as well jason you've been uh, uh just an outstanding guest i i, I can't 
thank you enough for for joining us. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I hope you have as well. Oh, thank you, Frank. No, this has been great. Yeah. And, yeah uh, go on for hours at this point. Yeah, I, I think we could, and and perhaps you know, I, I, you never know. I'm hoping one day to revisit the UK. I have many friends over there, and so you know, maybe I can work in a visit at some point. I would I would we love can. to do that. Oh yeah, that'd be fab. Maybe you'll be working on a film. Yeah, I hope so. I'm, you know, hope always springs eternal. I'll tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. Um, and I, I want to thank all our listeners for joining us as well. As, uh, as many of you know, we've been a little bit of a break, kind of a hiatus, while uh, we got through the holidays. And we've got uh, some great guests lined up over the next uh, several months, so I'm really excited about it. And uh, Jason was the perfect person to kick it off for us as we start our, our third season of What's the Score. That's going uh, to do it for us today. There's only one thing left to say, and that's simply this. My name is Frank R. Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score. <laughs>